0: The problem is, you know, the problem is just being chair. Like, you have to, you know, there's meetings and stuff. Stop,
1: stop it. Chair. This is the most annoying uh, aspect of this job. It's like you uh, you're suddenly saying, you're suddenly referring to yourself as chair all the time.
0: I'm going to continue doing that, too. I think I, I, I know <laughs> you are. The chair is very busy.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government. Here at William and Mary, and joining me as always is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hello, Marcus.
0: Hello, Jeff. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I thought we could start off with a little bit of follow up. A couple of weeks ago, on um, this very podcast, this is uh, just kind of just after the horrendous terrorist attacks by Hamas in Israel and um, the kind of initial Israeli response that was killing a lot of civilians, and there are some very some very um, graphic videos and pictures that are circulating still on social media. And so I started off the podcast a couple of weeks ago by just at least pointing out to, to listeners that that you're not required to, to witness all this stuff, that it for your own mental health, it might be a good idea to step outside of the social media stream. And I was directing this, I think, in particular at students who are uh, more extremely online than than the rest of us, um, and so may be more susceptible to this kind of uh, feed of horrible images and audio and video. And uh, one of our listeners sent in a um, a piece. This is a, a guest post in a um, epidemiology Substack about something called vicarious trauma, which is the psychological impact of secondhand exposure to traumatic events. So this this kind of thing that I was offhandedly saying apparently is a real is a real thing that psychologists study um and the author of this piece who is dr julie Kaplow, who uh uh get out of co- coincidentally is my is my sister <laughs> the <laughs> the uh the, the the most successful scholar in our immediate family for sure right us uh, who she studies grief and trauma and she's this she's a psychologist you know she writes about you know what you can do practically to kind of get yourself out of this of this world so it's not just turning off social media but you know there are other things you can do to kind of connect yourself to prevent the kind of negative effects of, of witnessing this. And I didn't get much pushback to, to my, my pitch about this a couple of weeks ago, but there is some pushback to this idea in the Substack comments, which, you know, you ne- you never read the comments, right? Like it's never, it's never a good idea to read the comments, but in this case, there are a couple of interesting points that people made this idea that there's a tension between what psychologists, uh, or Dr. Caplow here is calling cost of caring the cost of mm. caring the cost of of putting yourself out there and, and having empathy for these people who are being harmed is that you can you can kind of suffer the the mental health consequences of this vicarious trauma. But there's a tension between that cost of caring and the kind of public good of outrage and protest and taking action. Right, and the more these these horrible images get out, the more likely people are to say this is unacceptable and like take a stand against what they see as something uh, wrong in the world. And so there there is a little bit of a tension there between kind of protecting yourself and uh, the kind of greater public good of being upset about uh, horrible things that are happening in the world and taking action to stop them. And so I guess, you know, what, my response to that would be, you don't have to watch every video, but you shouldn't put your head in the sand and not know that this stuff is going on, right? You should read an article about it every day and stay up to date with what's happening um, so that you are an informed citizen of the world. And, and when things go too far, you can step up and try to try to change, make change.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, and I, I we were talking before we hit uh, record actually a little bit about this in the sense that I myself have over the past couple of weeks, like definitely experienced, I don't, I don't know if uh, vicarious trauma, it's um, necessarily capturing it, but what i 've i 've noticed is just a uh, kind of feeling of of helplessness in, in in looking at this stuff, so you know you see the the events on the ground and they 're horrible and you feel bad for the victims, you feel bad for um, basically everybody involved in the sense that you know there 's no winners or losers here when it comes to civilians dying, whether it 's in Gaza or in, in israel uh, and just a sort of a, a lack of of ability to really do anything about it right and so I think, I think you 're right that you know, it's it's the tension is you want to be able to to have this outrage, you want to be able to do something, and public opinion sort of pointing towards you know being outraged. I think can have productive effects sometimes, um, but on the other hand, there's also this this sort of long standing conflict where it seems like there are no good ideas and there's there's no good options, just leave you to this kind of sense of like not being able to to do anything about it. And then that just makes, makes people, including myself, just so depressed about the whole situation. Cause it's like, it, this isn't one where you can kind of come up with like, Oh, I have a solution here. I have a, a good idea. It's like, it just seems to be, you know, b- a bereft of good ideas, uh, unfortunately. So it's, it's trauma, uh, and just, you know, sort of like learned helplessness is the way I would put it. Like just, we've seen over and over again with this, this conflict in particular, it's just, you just grow to sort of understand that there's just not much that, that can really be done, unfortunately. And that's, yeah, that's very difficult to deal with. So I, I'm a big uh, proponent of taking a time out and, uh, you know, turning off Twitter or, you know, X or uh, Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is that you're getting your sort of images in particular from, because I think images can be particularly traumatizing, um, and just taking a break and uh, seeing if you can try to, like, reset uh, a little bit.
1: Yeah, just on that on that point, the other Dr. Kaplow suggests that uh, one way you can kind of counteract some of the negative Effects of vicarious trauma is to find ways to feel useful," mm. she says. "Quote: This can include donating to causes that help address the needs of those suffering, or even just reaching out to a neighbor or friend who is struggling. And you know, we we see this during you know, some interesting data in this this piece about uh, responses to nine eleven and and other terrorist attacks and and how um, the, your media consumption can affect your your mental health. But you know, if you know someone who is particularly affected by this uh these events then reaching out and seeing how you can help them or talking to them um, is one way you can be feel useful and that can kind of help counteract this vicious cycle and create this virtuous cycle of of helping others.
0: Yeah, and I think the other the other piece of this too is like sometimes people um talk about the lack of ability to do anything and and sort of substitute like sometimes this idea of like slacktivism, right? Where like if I like a Facebook video or I like a post or something that's like doing something. You know, clearly, I think when it comes to these types of, of, you know, traumatic incidences, that's that's not enough, you know. And so, I think oftentimes people feel the need to, you know, do something beyond social media, like go and like talk to somebody, like in person, and you know, have a relationship with somebody, or donate money, or donate your time, or volunteer, whatever the case is, whatever makes sense for you. Um, that's probably going to be more the, the type of activity that's going to alleviate some of this, uh, the personal distress, than just engaging on social media, but.
1: Well, so thank you to the, to the listener that sent this in. Well,
0: I'd say thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, frankly, I mean, I wish we had the other Caplow on the podcast every once in a while. Very interesting research.
1: She, she'll be much better at this. Much better. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, the other news item that caught my eye here, one continuing theme of this podcast is the intersection of technology and uh, international relations and conflict. Yep. I saw an interesting piece about the providers of mapping data traffic data, like Google Maps and Apple Maps and Waze, turning off that data for the Gaza Strip because of concerns that traffic data will provide indicators of where military troops are um, during an invasion. And, And I thought this was kind of interesting because, you know, we don't often think about the stuff that 's sitting on our phones and and the kind of mass market consumer applications that really do pro- that provide data that can have an effect in a, in a war zone in a, in a wartime environment and it reminded me, Marcus, of a story that we talked about I think on this podcast uh, probably a year ago several years ago yeah, yeah, about a running app that inadvertently revealed the location of like secret u s military bases. <laughs> <laughs> because it, you could see it, this was like a social running app. What's the name of this app again?
0: Yeah, so the app is called Strava. I'm a. By the way, I'm I'm, I'm big on Strava. So if you, if follow, you Marcus up, follow, right? follow Marcus yeah. on, the, on Strava, follow Marcus on on Strava, you'll see all my training. I pu- I post every run, and so you'll see I'm
1: not leaving anything. So it shows like where you're going and everything.
0: Well, okay. So let's we got to back up. So it can, and by default it will. So uh, if you go outside for a run and you you track yourself with like a GPS watch or your your you know Apple product, I don't use Apple Product, whatever it is on your iPhone, kind of track your, your run, you can then upload that to Strava. And what Strava will do is keep track of like, you know, how much you're running, your paces, stuff like that. It'll show you your improvement over time. If you pair it with a heart rate monitor, you can get, you know, good heart rate uh, and see how like your fitness is improving and all that kind of stuff. It's really it's really good. It's motivating. There's a social kind of community aspect to it. You can join groups, you can join like local or international Uh, groups that have similar goals to you. If you're going to run the Boston Marathon, you can join the Boston Marathon group, share training advice, all that kind of stuff. And like any social media, you know, you see everybody's runs and the pictures they post and you can like them and comment and all that kind of stuff. Um, so by default, it kind of just like does everything. So if you go and run outside in your neighborhood and you follow me, Jeff, you'll be able to see, uh, you know, this is where Marcus Holmes lives because I see every day he runs the same loop and starts and finishes at the same, same spot. Um, Subsequently, like they've introduced more privacy control. So one of the things you can do is say, okay, I'm okay with having my run out there, but I want the start and the finish to be hidden uh, by like 500 meters or a thousand meters. So like people might know, okay, Professor Holmes lives, lives in this neighborhood, uh, but I don't know what house he lives in, right? Or he lives in you know, Williamsburg, but I don't know exactly, exactly where. But by default, it is just going uh, to upload everything to the, to the cloud and then be available on, on the app. So what happened in, in this particular instance is that there were uh people on a, a US military base in Afghanistan, I think it was, training, like running. Um and I, I guess inadvertently like not realizing that um when they posted their, their runs to Strava, which happened automatically. You know, it's not like you have to sit down on the computer and like upload a file, it just automatically happens. Um that information is is online. And what's more is that Strava has this feature called a heat map. And so you can see, like, if you go in New York City, for example, there's a heat map that shows, like, Central Park, tons of runners and cyclists every single day. And so that lights up, uh, like, really clearly. And I guess some people were doing, um, you know, sort of, like, looking at heat maps around the world. And they noticed that it's, like, in the middle of the desert, like, in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan, there's, like, this one loop that was popping up as being super hot. And so once they saw that, that loop and they, they realized, like, okay, this is clearly something. Somebody's living in Afghanistan. Somebody has a smartwatch in Afghanistan. Uh, and it's not just one person. It's many people. And that led, led to the sort of discovery or the uh, uh, the visibility of this base where you had American soldiers uh, kind of doing, doing runs. So it's one of these instances of of kind of combining technology uh, with military because unbeknownst to the people that were were running – just right for exercise, creating basically like a national security threat uh, in the process. So it's a, it's a very kind of interesting story, and I see the parallels here because they're not runners that they're necessarily worried about tracking, but they're you know military equipment, uh, trucks, you know th- things of that nature, which the same kind of concept applies in Gaza as well.
1: Yeah, and and so m- many of these mapping apps, for those who aren't aware, by by default are capturing information constantly from their users in order to give you those traffic. Uh, lines on your on your map to show like it's red because there's a traffic jam here or there's a red light if you're talking about Williamsburg that's when we get we get red whenever there's a red light but in other places that means there's actually traffic and there that where does that data come from it's it's coming from your your app that you're running and and so you know there's a risk that in a war zone either people have these apps on or you know non-military traffic is affected by by these things as well so the the app makers have turned off traffic data in order to not inadvertently reveal the the presence of military forces and it, it just it kind of goes to this this idea that you know this this data that's out there about all of us all the time a, a has implications that we don't usually think of when we think about, if we think about or oh, using a mapping app or a running app. What could this matter for things in international relations? But um, these data, when they're aggregated, really do have an effect. And, and so we have to kind of think about what are the follow-on impacts of uh, consumer technology for uh, military and international security reasons. Uh,
0: we talked in January, we talked about this... Um workshop that i went to for the ai uh and sort of nuclear you know decision making uh type stuff and there was a lot of debate about whether ai was going to be you know good for the world bad for the world make things more peaceful whatever um and i remember distinctly one of the the people in the workshop i can't remember his name i can look it up for the the show notes but he was or maybe i shouldn't actually but uh he he had worked with the australian um you know defense forces for like you know 20 or 30 years and his point was that he wasn't worried about AI in the sense that we were talking about it, like, you know, nuclear you know, decision making. His concern with technology was very much what you're talking about, the sort of like uses of your phone, of watches, of any sort of like smart, quote unquote smart device that you don't even think about because it's just so routine to you that you like use these things. And what you don't think about is creating this, this security uh, concern precisely because it, it doesn't even occur to you to be worried about it, right? So this is at his point it's sort of like over time, you know, our, our our sense of privacy has like changed so much that you know we don't even think twice about you know letting the entire world know that I just went for a five mile run like around my neighborhood, like when I'm, when I'm in my house, when I'm not in my house, when uh, you know where I live, all that kind of stuff is just like we it it, don't even think about it. But in the national security context, when you're, you're in the army or the military or whatever. It's, it's a hugely you know, uh, uh, important, particularly in the aggregate, right? So it's like one soldier doing something is, is you know important, but you bring all of those together and you start to see these patterns. That can be very dangerous for all kinds of different, different reasons. So his, it's, it was very interesting that from the AI perspective, he wasn't worried about these like big picture, like making the world blow up. His thing was, how do we get soldiers in a very practical way to think about the technology that they're using and currently not even thinking about it? and that's that's a challenge and he he didn't have any great you know sort of solutions to that but they do he was indicating that Australia does have these training programs for for soldiers and people in the in the defense forces because they recognize that this is a potential problem.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Another thing happening right now is a discussion around the timing of Israel's ground forces uh, going into Gaza. We have, we all are kind of anticipating an invasion of Gaza by by Israeli forces and this has been kind of anticipated for a while now. I've talked about it in the last couple of podcasts. But there have been calls by prominent international players for a delay of Israel's uh, invasion. So that's coming from the United States and from from others, from the UN, from uh, NATO members. So I, I saw a story right now. It's As we record, it's a little unclear what's going on with this. But there's at least some reporting that Israel has agreed to uh, at least a short delay of its invasion to allow the United States to bring additional missile defense assets to the area to protect U.S. forces that are in the area, right? So this isn't for Israeli force protection. This is for U.S. force protection. And for those not not aware, the United States has a number of, of military assets in the greater region, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Iraq, UAE, and these Additional missile defense assets would be there to to kind of protect those forces because the U.S. anticipates additional attacks or uh, at least threats against U.S. military personnel and military contractors in the region. This comes at the same time as maybe some U.S. pressure. On Israel to, I don't know how to phrase this, to like rethink or think more clearly about their goals with this ground invasion. So there's a New York Times article uh, headlined "U.S. Raises Concerned about Concerns about Israel's Plan of Action in Gaza," officials say. And the the lead is that the Biden administration is concerned that Israel lacks achievable military objectives in Gaza. And that the Israel defense forces are not yet ready to launch a ground invasion with a plan that can work, senior administration officials said. And I'll put a link to this article in the show notes. And it's kind of interesting in the sense that we don't often see a public airing of these kinds of things between allies like the United States and Israel. But it isn't shocking that people have questions about the outcome of Israel's plans and how Israel's military plans translate into political goals. So I thought we could talk about at least a couple of these issues. Maybe we can start with this idea of the risk of a wider conflict in the region that is implied by the U.S. concern about bringing missile defense assets to the region, so the U.S. at least seems to be anticipating potential for a wider conflict, or at least additional threats against U.S. forces. Marcus, what is your feeling about the risk of a wider conflict in the region beyond Israel-Gaza? Is there a risk of states getting involved? Is this risk kind of limited to Hezbollah or other non-state actors? What's your, what's your feeling about this?
0: Well, I mean, there's, there's two... Uh... Kind of aspects of this that I think are are important, and the first one is that when we think about the players, like in the in the region that are going to be affected by um, a ground invasion in, into Gaza, you clearly think about you know Hezbollah. I think about Iran, um, but the one the the, the reason that I am sort of was heartened by the idea of the delay uh, was not so much that you know bringing in resources to protect U.S. Uh, uh, military assets. I think is that's important and that's fine. But what was happening with Qatar as this sort of, like, intermediary with respect to the hostages, it felt like, and it still feels like, there has been some uh, movement in freeing more, more hostages and that they're actually, like, have a little bit of a, of a connection, well, more than a little bit of a connection. They have a connection to Hamas and are able to, as we saw over the last couple of days, like, get more hostages uh, released. When a ground invasion happens, it seems to me like your, your chances of getting hostages released goes way down. Qatar's uh, ability to sort of mediate any type of. of um You know, way to free hostages and things like that, I think probably goes away. Uh, And Qatar is like in a a worse position to help the U.S. uh, and Israel get these hostages back. So I think about, you know, what the ground invasion might mean from a a regional security perspective, both in terms of like who might get drawn in. And we can talk about that in a second, but also like what it it prevents from happening. And one thing I think one of the things that it potentially prevents from happening is getting more of these hostages uh, freed.
1: The other kind of follow on to that, Marcus, before you move on, is the provision of more... Humanitarian aid and the potential of getting innocent civilians out of harm's way, right. and so one of the themes in these calls for delay is that the humanitarian situation in Gaza is a complete disaster. The uh, hospitals need fuel and supplies. Everybody needs aid. It's a it's a horrible situation, and many thousands of civilians more are likely to die if. That aid doesn't make it into Gaza, and so one reason to have a delay in Israeli ground military action is that it allows some time to stabilize the civilian humanitarian situation in Gaza. Once there is a ground invasion, it will be difficult, or if not impossible, to maintain those lines of supply.
0: Right, exactly. Um, And so that's that's a huge issue. And so that's that's why, from the delay perspective, I was I was thinking about it in terms of like, what else can we accomplish? In a positive way before what seems like an inevitable ground invasion uh, takes place. Now, once we have that ground invasion, I think and I hope what's happening is, is that the United States is putting as much pressure um, as they can on the idea that this ground invasion needs to have um, limited scope. And it needs to have some end goals sort of defined. I think what everybody's worried about is a ground invasion that is going to uh, try to eliminate Hamas, try to, um, you know, go, go anywhere in Gaza where you have to to find, you know, uh, Hamas militants or officials or whoever with the sort of goal of like really just wiping out Hamas altogether and putting in a new governance uh, structure of some, of some kind, Right. I think everybody—not everybody—most analysts looking at that see that as a, an incredibly difficult thing to do. Something that would require um, a, a lot of violence would require a long time to be, you know, occupying Gaza. And so that—that that seems to be something that um, would be very detrimental to the security situation in the region because you're going to have these other states looking on at this this major invasion of Gaza where. You know, civilians are inevitably going to get killed. Hamas is going to be tried to be wiped wiped out. That increases the incentive, I think, for in Iran, let's say, to get involved uh, and and say, "Look, this is this is unacceptable to us. Um, this is the opportunity for us to to finally, you know, sort of have the war that we've been, you know, the, everybody's been hoping we would not have." But if push comes to shove that might be the 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 reason why Iran were to get involved. So, to preempt that from happening, to sort of be in a situation where that's less likely to occur, I think the US uh and and its allies need to be really sort of you know putting to Israel this, this notion that the grand invasion is going to happen, but the aims have to be very clear and articulated what what it is that we're trying to uh accomplish. It's I think it's inevitable that it will happen, but like how do we how do we do it in such a way that we we sort of Reduce the chances of this uh, becoming fully escalated with other regional partners. Yeah,
1: I I agree with you that there is a link between these two questions. How does Israel try to achieve its goals and the risk of a wider conflict? But I I just want to try to pin you down a little bit on the the real risk here, because I, I think it's at least the way Israel is talking about this this war it seems like they're trying to prepare the public for a long conflict, a costly conflict and one whose goal is the elimination of Hamas, which mm. you just said is a very difficult task, I agree. So given let's let's just assume that Israel follows through on that that approach. Do you think that there's a, a strong risk that Iran, the country Iran, enters this conflict?
0: I don't think there's a strong risk, but I I could definitely see a situation where Israel enters Gaza, it, it becomes incredibly violent, and you know, opinion in the region, including in you know Iran, maybe Saudi Arabia, uh, looks at this and says Egypt looks and says like this is just this is unacceptable to us, right? Like at at some point, it seems like there's a threshold that w- that you can cross where, um, the, you know, the the people in Iran, the the people in Egypt are demanding some type of um remediation for the Palestinians in, in Gaza. I don't know what that threshold is. I don't know. That that might be tomorrow if if Israel invades. Like maybe the war plans are are set and you know, Lebanon and Iran, you know, through Hezbollah, they're 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 banking on this idea and they're getting ready to go. I don't think that's the case. But I could see a situation where this gets a little bit out of control and what i mean by out of control is out of out of the control of israel in the sense that it becomes way more you know bloody and violent than they were they were expecting where the goals if it's to eliminate hamas become like how do you, how do you do that first of all like what does that even mean like you going building to building like apartment to apartment you know it's, it's it would be uh, incredibly lengthy incredibly violent so there there seems to be in my head a threshold that that you could easily cross or you could see being crossed in which case you would have Iran uh, thinking that they have no choice but to come to the aid of the of the Palestinians. I don't think it's likely, but I, I see that as a potential problem.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's very unlikely, but I, I agree that it, it, it's not out of the realm of possibility. But yeah. to my mind, Iran, the country Iran, sending Iran's military to be involved in a conflict with Israel at this point um, is, is a very unlikely event. I think a much more likely event. And this seems to be what Israel is preparing for, is that Israel is fighting not just in Gaza, but also in an escalated way in the West Bank, and is fighting maybe a real war with Hezbollah in in a way that it hasn't in a little bit. Because those are uh, levers that Iran can pull that limit the potential escalation in terms of U.S. involvement directly against Iranian forces. I think that if Iran, the country, gets involved in this conflict— there is a pretty good likelihood that the U.S. the country also gets involved in this conflict, mm-hmm. and uh, that's something I think Iran would like to, avo- like to avoid.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I think they would like to avoid it. Um, but I don't want to be like you know super negative, but like well, let's imagine a world where um, let's say both China and Russia tell Iran, we we're with you, we support you, right? If you feel the need to engage militarily with with Israel, and then ostensibly the United States. Um, we're going to, we're going to support you. I mean, that's like sort of like apoc- apocalyptic, but it's also not like completely out of the question, like one seeing that. Now it's contradicted by the fact that, you know, Russia has been fairly muted. China has been very muted so far. Um, but you could, you could sort of see things changing relatively quickly if the ground invasion goes poorly from the perspective of of Israel's perspective you know, three weeks into it, they've accomplished none of their goals. It's incredibly violent. The civilian casualties are are really high. Uh, things can change in that kind of environment very quickly. And if if sort of public opinion in the Middle East uh, becomes you know over the top, you know, sort of negative, and that we need to do something, you know, it's not it's not to me totally out of the question that that China and, and Russia would th- at that point take a little bit more of a stand, uh, which is again what you don't want if you if you want to prevent you know sort of World War Three. Uh, from happening. So I, I'm with you. I don't see it as a likely possibility, but I am, I am very much um, cognizant of the fact that if you, if you sort of take the worst case you know, scenario um, it's, it's not one that is completely out of the realm of, of possibility, at least to me.
1: Higher on my list of concerns uh, for a wider regional conflict is a sort of more general breakdown of the security situation in the region Led by these kind of non-state actors engaging more aggressively against Israel, which leads to more refugees, which leads to more political unrest, which leads the countries around Israel to take action against their own domestic opposition groups. Uh, We we talk sometimes in political science about one of the major risk factors for civil war being war nearby, that there's a kind of contagion effect from war. You've war on your border, you're more likely to see war the next year. Um, and part of that is that the dynamics here don't stop at borders, they cross borders. And so when you have Gazan refugees fleeing into Egypt, that contributes to destabilizing Egypt's domestic political situation, and, and you, the security situation. And you can you can imagine how these kinds of things can spread. And so I I think that that scenario where you have a kind of spread of civil conflict across the, the region is something, you know, worth considering and thinking about and having plans to try to address. So let's turn to the, well, you've mentioned a couple times here that the difficulty of the task in front of Israel, if its goal is the elimination of Hamas, and this New York Times article about how the US has questions about the plan here. So You know, we've seen a lot of talk uh, in the kind of foreign policy analysis world about the link between military and political goals when it comes to something like this. So this idea that, okay, what are you going to do militarily to achieve a political end? So you go into with ground forces into Gaza and the goal is a new government for Gaza that doesn't include Hamas, maybe. What is the path by which you get from this ground invasion to this political outcome? And I think everybody is pointing out that it's very hard to imagine what that path looks like. It, it's really hard. And, and in fact, Israel's uh, military, when asked about this, seems to want to dodge this question as well. They, you know, I saw a quote today from some IDF spokesmen saying that the, the governance of Gaza is a global problem. Mm. Right. It's not an Israeli problem. So it's almost as if the the idea is, okay if we go in and unseat Hamas and leave, then, okay, you know, we did our job. But as uh, um, IR professors here in the room, you know, we have a long list of situations in which unseating the government and leaving ended up being a really bad idea. And I think we we can all think of examples of this. Iraq is kind of. Comes first to mind, although the U.S. actually did a lot to try to replace the government in Iraq. And so, one thing to consider here is like, what lessons can Israel learn from past attempts at doing this? And is there even a pathway for Israeli for the Israeli military action to lead to some kind of stable non-Hamas government in in Gaza?
0: Yeah, I mean, in a, in a conflict in a situation with many difficult questions, this might be the the hardest one to answer because. Time and time again, it's it seemed like there are no viable alternatives uh, to Hamas in Gaza. Uh, before we we hopped in the pod, I was I was looking at this article that Daniel Byman uh, wrote in 2018, and the title is "Why Israel is Stuck with Hamas." And he goes through many of the things that we just you just sort of alluded to. Um, Hamas has uh, you know okay, so terrorist organization, but also provides lots of services for people in Gaza. They're very good at. Um, you know sort of being secretive in, in the tunnels that we talked about last time on the pod, um, having control over um, like we saw with this attack there there uh, there were no leaks there was you know they were using evidently like landlines to to communicate like they have they have a very good in the sense of um, being able to control this the situation in gaza and it it's so good that when when Israel has these uh, uh, fights with with Hamas, which happened you know routinely as we know. Hamas always sort of manages to, to, to stay, uh, relevant in Gaza. And so if you're going to have an alternative, it seems to me, you have to identify what that alternative realistically looks like before you go and and try to eliminate Hamas. We, we, I don't think anybody has a great answer to that. This idea of like internationally, um, you know, governed, uh, Gaza sounds, sounds great. That sounds like a, a nice like idea in the same way that like, you know, sort of Jerusalem, I guess is, is internationally sort of, uh, uh, controlled in some sense, but even that doesn't really work all the time. So I, I don't know what that, that looks like. My, the, the other thought that I have though, is that what, what, when Israel is talking about the elimination of, of Hamas, I mean, one of the things that might be happening here is that they know that that's not actually realistic. They know that that's not that possible. Um, but what they're trying to do is send a very strong signal to, to Hamas that this is different than previous um, fighting that, that has occurred between, between Israel and Hamas. And they might be trying to set the ground for some type of of ceasefire that will will happen, uh, but on the on grounds that Israel is comfortable with, right? So it's 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 about sort of signaling to Hamas that this is what what you've done is is um, much worse than than what you've done in the past, and we're not going to tolerate it, and we we are going to go in, and there's going to be violence. We know we can't eliminate Hamas completely. We know we don't have an after um, Hamas is gone uh, plan. We know we can't just open up Gaza, and I mean, sometimes this idea gets gets floated too. It's like, well, why why is there a Gaza Strip? Why don't you just open up and, and let people? Yeah. That's not that's not viable either uh, to a lot of Israeli pol, you know policymakers. Although there's some people in Israel that that support that idea, um, but you know, it's like, so what do we what do we do after this this happens? And I think Israel likely knows that they don't have a great uh, choice after Hamas is gone, uh, and so what this is really about is trying to figure out a way to, to get to a ceasefire, which is not going to happen anytime soon, I don't think, but eventually get to a ceasefire on grounds that, that Israel can, um, you know, on conditions that Israel can, can support and, and be happy with. So that's like, I kind of think where things stand, because I I agree with you that the, the lesson of Iraq and other um, invasion, even Afghanistan, to a certain extent, you know, it's, 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 the, the easy part in some sense is the military aspect. That's what the United States found out in Iraq. It was very, it was very, and nothing's easy militarily, but that that became the thing that didn't take very long, and the goals, the military goals, were accomplished uh, pretty quickly. It's the political goals, and and sometimes not even having a political goal in mind, those are those are, that's what's hard uh, because that's that's where you sort of you know have to realize you're dealing with with human beings, you're dealing with people. Uh, there are many Palestinians that actually like Hamas and support Hamas um because of the goods and services that they do provide. And so this isn't necessarily a situation where you're sort of liberating um a people. Certainly some people in, in Gaza feel that way. They want to be liberated. But there's also plenty of people who who think that Hamas has uh, done a good job for for people living in Gaza. So incredibly complicated, but I, I agree hundred percent the military goals and the political goals, it seems like here um are not the same, can't be the same. And so therefore the question is, well what are we what are we gonna do politically once this invasion takes place?
1: Yeah, I think what you said about the positioning for a potential ceasefire down the line with Hamas is is interesting, but I don't think that that's what Israeli Israeli policymakers are thinking about as they lay these goals out to the public. It wouldn't surprise me if the ultimate endgame here is an attempt to degrade Hamas and their capabilities as much as possible with what Israel considers to be acceptable losses to Israeli troops and then bail, uh, and then get out of Gaza. It wouldn't surprise me if that was ultimately what ended up happening. But the way Israeli policymakers are positioning this as we are going to end Hamas as an organization, well, the, the problem there is that Israel is a democracy. They are laying out for the Israeli public, the Israeli voting public, uh, a clear goal, a clear military goal, that will be very difficult to achieve. And I think this creates a kind of lock-in, as we would say in political science, where the leaders are incentivized to continue to prosecute this conflict because they know that the public has been kind of set up to feel like this is the goal. And if they end the campaign before that goal is achieved, they may face political consequences for doing so. This is all complicated by the fact that the political situation in, in Israel is a mess and uh, you know the, the kind of role of Netanyahu in all of this uh, is quite fraught, and that adds complications in, in every direction. But what is, Israel is doing in, in laying out this goal makes it harder, not easier to stop short of the complete destruction of Hamas.
0: Right. I mean, I, and so the question is sort of like, why are they saying this right? So it's like it, they, they might believe it, so it might be the fact that like, their goal is to eliminate Hamas, and they, however we define that, right? Maybe what they mean is senior leadership, you know, maybe what they mean is you know, every Every person who supports Hamas, like we have, we, we we deal with them in some way. Who knows what this sort of eliminate Hamas actually means? But maybe they they, they believe it, and maybe that's that is the the strategy. Um, maybe there's people in, in the IDF and, and uh, Israeli policymaking circles that want to return to when Gaza was what Israel did occupy Gaza, right? So that was from what 1967 to 2005, yep. right? So it's like that that is that was the status quo for a very long time. The problem with that was that that becomes very costly for, for Israel's perspective, uh, number one, from military, you know, violence, and there, there was constant attacks on, you know, IDF soldiers and things like that. But also it was, it was bad for the Palestinians because they didn't have any, any governance, you know, structure. They didn't have any voice. They didn't have any autonomy. Um, so that doesn't seem like a great uh, uh, solution either. Um, if for somehow you could figure out a way to negotiate with uh, the Palestinian Authority and Fatah and like somehow some type of, Reconciliation and find some deal where they could, you know, it seems like that's far fetched. So, like, I, it just seems like you you, 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 if the goal is to eliminate Hamas and what you mean by that is like, you know, sever it in such a way that they have no leadership. There has to be some type of plan after that, you know, and 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 if there isn't a plan, then it's I question why they're even saying or using that language of eliminate Hamas. I mean, I just maybe maybe it works, you know, to to garner support for the invasion. Maybe that's what people in Israel want right now because this is such a traumatic event. Um, But the elimination of Hamas will come with with very significant consequences, it seems to me.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it speaks to a military goal without a political goal, without an achievable political goal, without the link between military objectives and political objectives. And that's worrying to everybody, right? Like that Israel could be going into this without some idea of how they're going to stabilize the the situation once the military part of the campaign is over and that's you know pretty dangerous and we had have a lot of examples of how that can go wrong and i think it's worth bringing into the conversation here the the, the challenge, particular challenges that israel faces going into an urban combat setting and you know we have some recent examples of trying to take over urban environments from mariupol in in ukraine to to Mosul in 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 Iraq, to Fallujah, going back further, and the challenges that the uh, military forces face because they're at a serious disadvantage because the urban environment allows the fighters, the Hamas fighters, to hide among civilians. Mm-hmm. And so what ultimately ends up happening in, in each of these cases is just rampant destruction of the city. And if you put that in a place like Gaza, it's going to result in many thousands of civilian deaths. And it's just horrible to contemplate. And Israel is kind of subject, at least a little bit, to international pressure and hopefully is kind of unwilling to accept the number of civilian casualties that would be required um, if they leveled the entire city, which means they're going to be doing something else, like going door to door, trying to get into tunnels, Work through the tunnel system, which is honestly something that IDF, you know, IDF knows about these. IDF is the Israeli Defense Force, knows about these tunnels, have you know, experience dealing with them, has planned. I'm sure there are plans on the books for what you do when you go into Gaza. This is not like a, a new threat that Israel is facing, and Israel has some technology that it thinks will be helpful here. But it, it's, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be very difficult. It's going to result in a lot of Israeli military deaths and many, many more deaths of Gazan civilians and all sorts of challenges that come from fighting in this urban environment.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, we started uh, two weeks ago in our reaction to the the terrorist attack in the first place, and one of them was the intelligence failure uh to to be able to predict that this might happen um and there's there's been since that time like lots of different sort of people looking at why you know Israel uh, was surprised by this, more emphasis on the West Bank, all that kind of stuff but you know now you're saying okay, despite though that sort of like intelligent lack of intelligence, we're now going to try to to go into Gaza and try to find all these you know Hamas senior leadership positions and and uh, figure out you know. Who they are, where they're at, where they you know they're living in apartment buildings. It just seems like the the tactical challenges. Um, one of the things we've we've talked about off pod also is how densely populated Gaza is. I mean, if if maybe we can put this in the show notes, but like there's a the number of civilians that live there. Um, make it, just from a population perspective, very difficult to be able to go into a place and, and figure out where amongst all of these civilians, the people that you're looking for are and how do you get to them and how do you either, you know, capture them or kill them or whatever your your plan is in so many people just living their lives, you know. And, and so the the urban sort of aspect of this, not just in terms of like the buildings being close together, which they are, and the, the road networks uh, not being great, which they aren't you know and then trying to then among you know all this civilian population to find the people that you're looking for and do it in a way where you're minimizing civilian casualties i mean it's it's got to be it's got to be so so difficult and then and then it gets back to what we talked about a second ago which is even if you're successful even if you do the thing that you you think that you're going to do and, and eliminate Hamas there's still this political question of what happens happens next so this is why i'm i'm just hopeful and maybe this is the naive optimist in me that what the 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 plan for israel is is less on the elimination of Hamas and the way that we've been talking about it, and more about realizing that there a, a ceasefire needs to happen at some point and an invasion is going to happen, but having an invasion be a limited one where they can achieve some of the military goals that they want to achieve uh without the elimination of Hamas, getting a ceasefire that they can live with, and then try to hopefully have talks and negotiations and mediation and bring in you know, Qatar and Egypt and other players to try to, to figure out a better solution moving forward. That's the most naive, but also optimistic uh, perspective. And it's the one that I, I have to cling to because otherwise the thought of, of what's going to happen is just, you know, it's, it's miserable to think about.
1: I hope you're right. If you are, my advice to Israeli policymakers would be start laying the groundwork now in terms of what you're telling the Israeli people about What you're going to do here is level with the Israeli people, talk to them about how completely getting rid of every Hamas fighter, all 40,000 of them, is going to be hard. And, you know, we will do our best up to a particular point. But just tell the Israeli people what is involved here. And um, that will make it easier in the end to reach some kind of ceasefire that that ends hostilities if you're not able to achieve the, the absolute goal of complete elimination of Hamas.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, let's be honest, we talked about it last time that the United States does have leverage when it comes to uh, Netanyahu, when it comes to you know Israel more generally. And I think what I what I hope is happening is behind closed doors um, and the sort of backstage, you know, Biden is is putting pressure on. Netanyahu and others, others in um, Israel, to make sure that a ceasefire is not something that's you know it would be nice if that happens, but rather like is the plan like how do we how do we do this in such a way where the ceasefire is the goal and uh, make that the goal rather than the elimination of Hamas. That's that's what I hope is happening.
1: But it's not just behind closed doors. I mean, we we kind of see some of this leaking out. That this is what the U.S. is pushing for, not a ceasefire, of course, right? Because. We are standing firmly. We, the United States, are standing firmly behind Israel and its right to defend itself. Right. But, but there, there is this kind of persistent theme in what you see U.S. policymakers saying about not making the mistakes of the U.S. in the past, not making the mistakes of Iraq, not making the mistakes of Afghanistan. This is something that was in Biden's speech that we talked about last time and kind of linking up your political and military goals, which we see kind of some of the leaks coming out that we've been talking about. So I, I think that yeah. this is the U.S. message is, you know, be careful here. Try to figure out what your actual achievable goals are before before you go in and make a, make a mistake. I hope that that, uh, that message carries through. Uh, I think we're all kind of bracing ourselves for, for how bad this could be and hopefully uh hopefully it won't be as bad as it as that. But Marcus, on that pleasant note, maybe we should end it there.
0: Yeah, not the most optimistic, but um but yeah, we'll just see what happens and and hopefully my naive optimistic view uh prevails. We'll see.
1: I'd like to invite everyone listening to send us an email at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com with your questions or comments. If you have questions about this conflict, maybe even you know specific questions that wouldn't be a whole podcast We're we're kind of collecting these and maybe we'll do a, a mailbag episode um, in the next few weeks where we talk through some of the questions that people have students in particular are invited to do that cheap talk pod at gmail.com or you can always leave a voicemail for us at speakpipe.com slash cheap talk and uh marcus thanks so much for joining me today
0: yeah it's been great and like you know like npr this is listener supported so listener supported both in terms of your your uh your clicks and your listening uh, numbers, but also your ideas. So send us your ideas, your questions, and we'll be happy to uh, try at least try to address them.
1: We'll give it a shot. See everyone next week. Um, Anything exciting going on over there?
0: Well, I don't know if you pay uh, much attention to the chess world, but there was recently another, uh, uh, not cheating scandal, but there was a moment in time where uh, it looked like there might be a new kind of cheating scandal. The gist is Magnus Carlsen playing in uh, the Qatar uh, Masters Tournament, which is like one of these big kind of events. Where a lot of people uh, go. Sat down in front of this GM, um, I believe from Kazakhstan, and noticed that the the his opponent was wearing a watch, and watches are not allowed in. Uh, professional chess tournaments because you could if like it's a smart watch obviously you could have things you know sent to you but it was an, it was an analog watch but even that uh I think kind of disturbed Magnus Carlsen, the best player in the world uh a little bit and kind of threw him for a loop and he ended up losing the game and afterwards sort of blamed the watch situation. You know, he wasn't saying this this person cheated, but he was breaking the rules by having
1: the watch. Why didn't he say something about the watch?
0: Why didn't he say something about the watch? Yeah he did say something about. I think he
1: tell the guy to take off the watch.
0: <laughs> I think he called the arbiter over the person, like the rules official, and they didn't they didn't tell him to take the watch off or anything. It's 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 also one of these things where um, chess is a is a game slash sport if you see it that way. That's sort of like not well regulated from like a centralization perspective like every tournament has like kind of specific rules and things like that and it wasn't clear like you had to like dig into like the fine print of the rules book in Qatar to figure out like if an analog watch you know digital watch is clearly not allowed but an analog watch uh was was acceptable or not and I think in the moment they didn't really know the answer to that question and then FIDE the kind of organization that oversees things also has rules about watches and they list all watches as being uh, not allowed. Although the way they talk about watches is very much in the sort of smartwatch kind of way. So they kind of talk about watches generally, and that would include analog watches, but they also are talking about it in a way that implies that what they mean is a smartwatch. Basically, I don't think this guy was cheating, but I think Magnus Carlsen got kind of disturbed by the whole thing. And, and he lost his concentration. As you know, a top level chess, I mean, you, you don't know this, but in top level chess, one of the things we uh, players realize is that if you have a, of even a momentary sort of lapse in concentration, it can be, it can be all over. I think that's what happened.
1: Just, just like podcasting.
0: Exactly. The moment you sort of lose your concentration <laughs> for a second, the whole thing just falls apart.
1: Well, that's fascinating. We, yeah. I'm inclined to scrap our regularly scheduled programming to talk just about uh, the latest in chess cheating sort of scandal. Well, Although nobody's there okay. allega- uh, well, there's no allegations of actual cheating here is, is what I'm understanding. There's, well... He
0: didn't, he didn't come out and say this person cheated. What he said was he was wearing a watch, and as far as he understands, um, those aren't allowed. And so he wasn't able to concentrate. So I can read you the tweet he sent out. Uh, he, he admits he, got, he lost, right? So this is October 12th. It happened uh, two weeks ago. I was completely crushed in my game today. This is not to accuse my opponent of anything, who played an amazing game and deserved to win. But honestly, as soon as I saw my opponent wearing a watch early in the game, I lost my ability to concentrate. I obviously take responsibility for my inability to deal with those thoughts properly, but it's also incredibly frustrating to see organizers still not taking anti-cheating seriously at all, including no transmission delay, spectators walking around the playing hall with smartphones, etc. So what he's talking about here is, I don't have any evidence that this, this person cheated. If if somebody was going to cheat, a watch would be one way of, of doing it. These these tournaments are streamed online, so you can like watch what's happening in the moment. Some tournaments have a delay so that people, you know, back in the United States can't, like, see what's going on and then send signals to the players somehow. Uh, this is not one of those so, so this was happening live Everybody was watching it live People were walking around While looking at the games People have Audience members can have smartphones And so it, it, You don't really need to go to, to great lengths To see how it would be possible To cheat Somebody watching this on YouTube Can figure out the right move Send it to whoever Is in the room with, this, with an iPhone The person on the iPhone Sees it Somehow then communicates that To the person sitting across From Magnus Carlsen Maybe using the watch Maybe using something else Maybe there's code words You know All kinds of different things that Can happen And I think Magnus Carlsen is just getting more and more upset about not having real anti-cheating measures built into these to these tournaments.
1: I wonder if anyone has considered whether this is a Magnus problem more than a other people problem. He seems to be he seems... Well, look, I mean, the, the thing is, is like when you're the best player in the world, you're
0: on top. Everybody's trying to break you down. Everybody you play is like giving you like everything they have, you know? Yeah. It's like when you, you're the Patriots when they were like, you know, good in, in, in a dynasty. It's like everybody's just throwing everything at you. And so... You know, if you're, if you're Magnus, you might be like, okay, like every single person I play is like, you know, coming up with like amazing stuff. And every once in a while, you might think, this doesn't seem right. Like, it seems like, you know, this guy is like, you know, not as, as well rated as me. I should be able to uh, beat him pretty easily. And when you don't, then you're like, well, what's the explanation? Is it is it me? Am I just having like an off, you know, sort of, of day or whatever? Or is it possible this person is cheating or somehow you know related to something that might look like uh cheating. The other thing also that happens in in the, the chess world that's been coming up a lot is the difference between the over the board um Elo, so Elo being I think we talked about this in the podcast is basically a rating how well you you play chess relative to other people. You get more Elo when you win, you lose Elo when you lose. Um, The differences between over-the-board ELO and their ELO online on Chess.com, right? So, So one of the things that happens is you might be like a 2,500 player over the board in Qatar, and then you're in an online tournament. Uh, on chess.com you're beating like 2700s and that shouldn't happen if you're not cheating right it's like if you if you're 200 points lower over the board than you are uh, online maybe you're just more comfortable online you know maybe there's some reason why you stink over the board but if people have looked at the data and shown this sort of wide gap between uh people's over the board rating and their chess.com uh rating in tournaments and so that just leads to more speculation that cheating is probably pretty rampant online uh it's very easy to cheat online as we've talked about they don't have any sort of verification measures in a lot of these tournaments like cameras being on uh and stuff like that maybe they need to move to something along those lines but i I find it interesting like the gap between people's over the board uh rating elo rating and their online one which implies yes there's probably lots of cheating happening at top levels on chess.com
1: yeah that is interesting just back back to the the magnus this is potentially being a magnus problem i was watching the uh the Beckham documentary on um,
0: oh, I on like Netflix. that. I like I it, it's really that, good. Yeah. I've been enjoying
1: yeah. it. Um, yeah. But there was a line in there in like the second episode that I thought was great. It's that like David Beckham is realizing that says like the soccer announcer that the wind blows the strongest at the top of the mountain. <laughs>
0: that, that <I> <laughs> that's it. a great that's a great line. You know. Uh, one of the reasons I really liked the Beckham documentary was because I don't follow soccer. And so all of these games that they're playing, I don't know what happens. Exactly. It's (laughs) It's like, this is fantastic. Like, this is so exciting because I have no idea who's going to win. And I had remembered, you know, I I knew that he was dating a a Spice Girl and stuff like, but I didn't pay any attention to any of that kind of stuff. Right. And and so this was just like all new information, you know, it was was, was lovely. It was fantastic.
1: Yeah. It's very They should have made more episodes. Fascinating story. So,
0: I really don't like how, um... When, when, it, when a documentary series has, like, only, like, four or five. Like, I want a full... Give me... I know the danger is you can't sustain it through, like, eight or ten episodes. But I was really hoping for a couple more. Especially, I don't know how you've gotten to this part yet, but when it comes to the United States and the MLS stuff, like, give me a couple more episodes about that, that kind of stuff. You know?
1: Yeah. My favorite part of the, the show so far, I'm only on, like, episode two, is when they have the people who are involved watching the games... And they get this, like, really tight shot of just their face as, yeah. they, as they watch the replay. And, like, you can see, like, you know, their look of, like, anger or happiness. or like, I thought that was a very clever, clever gimmick to, like, have them kind of re-experiencing it with you.
0: There were, for some reason, though, there were a lot of shots of just David Beckham's face. Like, he, he was, like, looking at the camera, like, close up. Yeah. Um, and then he, like, he had, like, a little smirk or something like that. Like, timed perfectly. Like, that's, kind that's, of what, that's about, right? what they're doing. They're showing yeah.
1: him the thing you're about, you're seeing. Right. And right. that's like his reaction to the thing.
0: Right. But it was like, but, it, but they did it so much that it was like one of the iconic, like images I have in my head of that documentary is just looking at David Beckham's face <laughs> and then like a small, like micro expression changes when he hears like, you know, whatever they won or they lost or, you know, so I agree with you. I, and, and to the listeners out there, I mean, we're not, some, we don't, it's sponsored by Netflix or David Beckham, I, but I would recommend it. I think it's a good.
1: We're willing to be like, sponsored by Netflix or Beckham, please.
0: <laughs> if they're listening. Please
1: reach out. Cheaptalkpod at gmail.com.
0: Yeah, I, I would be I'd have a conversation with Netflix about this. But, I, you know, as somebody who doesn't pay any attention to soccer, I thought it was it was fantastic because it's, it's
1: a it's a human story. It's a, it's relationship a great story. Too. Yeah. yeah. And I, I also liked the interviews with like these two paparazzi guys who <laughs> who are just like
0: kind of admitted ta- being
1: jerks talking about how they're uh, they're You know, they got these shots of like their, their baby, um, you know, and they're like, oh, we, we wouldn't do that nowadays. Times different times, you know, but they seemed like uh, seemed like interesting guys.
0: Well, and I think it shows that they've learned a little something like they, you know, looking like looking back at that period, I think they realized like maybe they you know, went a little too far. I mean, and this is, we can talk about this another, another day. Maybe we should, we should, but the paparazzi in Britain versus the United States, it just yeah. seems like, but what is it about the culture there? Well, the that, whole like,
1: media is just insane. Like it's crazy. This, the, the whole response to Beckham, um, I don't want to, uh, spoil anything for anyone, but like, like the, the media treatment of, of him, it was just crazy town
0: what baffles me is like why there there obviously is a market in demand for these like images but but why like who wants to see like david beckham's children like leaving school or like who, who wants to see him in posh spice just like walking down a sidewalk like i don't i what what I, it doesn't like resonate with me is like why anybody like cares yeah you know so i that part i don't get and and, and why they care i guess especially so much in britain versus the united states i also i also don't get yeah. But anyway, Jeff, that was a long-winded way of saying I'm doing great. So thank you for asking.